You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'd like to get into the Word with you guys, and and we're going to close our service this morning with the Lord's Supper, and so I'm excited to share that with you guys as well this morning, but I will be trying to have just a little bit... uh, uh, shorter on the sermon side this morning so that we can have a little bit longer on the worship and waiting uh, on the Lord as we take the Lord's Supper together at the end of our service. That being said, if you have found 1 Corinthians chapter 15, would you please stand to your feet this morning as we read the first 11 verses of our Bibles together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, one, as by one born out of due time. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. Father God, as we come back to the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, Father, we pray that we would be reminded of what we stand on, the truth that we stand in, and Father, that you would pour out your grace upon our lives once again. And Lord Jesus, we so need you in our lives. We so need you every day. I I need you right now, Lord, as I teach this lesson, as I teach these scriptures. So, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Speak through me. And, Father, may this congregation be edified and built up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our message this morning is standing on the good news as we continue through the book of 1 Corinthians. And Covering now this chapter here, chapter 15, if you'll pull out your uh, handout this morning, your, your study guide, you can go along, and I've kind of provided that with a fill-in-the-blanks as a way for you to uh, hopefully be able to be involved a little bit and continue to follow along through. I know sometimes these Bible studies, they, they, they can be long, but this is a way for you to participate and just learn as much as you can. While I was driving around uh, here recently, I, I saw a sign at a church that said, striving for first century Christianity. And I couldn't help myself. I laughed out loud in my truck while I was driving. And I had my kids with me, and they were like, Dad, what's the deal? Why are you laughing? You know? 
and it was one of those weird moments, and, and I said, oh, oh, nothing, kids, you know, nothing really. And, but I was thinking in my mind, I'm sure they don't mean, you know, the church of Corinth, you know, which we're studying, and which we've been just seeing so many problems, and I know they don't. I know that they're probably referring to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which is the model early church, you know, which, which we, in a sense, are striving for as well. But I couldn't help but laugh and think to myself, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that the church I pastor doesn't, is not as crazy as the church at Corinth seemed to be and didn't have, we don't have all of these issues. Now, I'm sure we have many of them and, and you know, I'm sure that we have our issues. I know we do. Um, I'm not blind to that. Well, at least I don't think I am. If you think I am, just come and tell me, okay? And I'll, I'll know. But, but all of these things that Paul has brought up in this church... Think about it with me. Let's go back over it just for a second. First of all, there was division, both internally and then against Paul. That was chapters 1 to 4, if you remember that. They were, they were setting themselves up, some of the church leaders in Corinth, over and against Paul. And then they were breaking into different factions of different groups within the church there, and it was just so grieving. And then in chapter 5 and 6, there was the issue of sexual immorality. Some of the believers were actually going to the prostitutes. Others were tolerating this situation of just gross sexual immorality in a family there in the church. And then there was also the the issues of believers going to law against one another there in chapters 5 and 6. And and all that was going on. Then in chapter 7, Paul addresses the issues of marriage and singleness. Where there was, you know, some of the married couples were like, hey, we're already like the angels now. We don't need to give ourselves to each other in sexual intimacy. And, and that was creating all kinds of problems, as you can only imagine. Uh, then there was the, the issue of food that was sacrificed to idols. And really, we equated that to Christian liberty, the issues of Christian liberty. That was chapters 8 through 10 that Paul was dealing with that. And then we get to chapter 11 where Paul has to remind them and encourage them to maintain a gender distinction between their males and their females as they're worshiping in the church service. That was chapter 11, first half. And then the second half, he was dealing with the abuse of the Lord's Supper. And then as you know, for the last few weeks now, we've been talking about chapters 12 through 14 where Paul was really zeroing in on the issue of the public worship service and, and the overemphasis of the gift of tongues and, and how there was no divine love as the motive behind what they were doing in church. And it was kind of tearing the church apart instead of building the church up. So Paul dealt with all of that. And we just finished that in chapter 14. And Paul now is going to turn to another issue here in chapter 15. And, and, and basically, since chapter 7, Paul's just been dealing with issue after issue that they wrote to him about. They, they wrote a letter to Paul, and he's responding to them. The church leadership had voiced their opinion on some things, and they were, they were kind of fighting back against Paul. And so Paul is having to correct them. And, and here in chapter 15, he's having to correct them about their belief about the resurrection of believers. Okay, the resurrection of, of believers uh, in, in, the, uh, in the resurrection. And, and so Paul's going to talk about this in chapter 15. And it's really going to be interesting for us. Because maybe some of you have some questions about what does the resurrection of believers look like? What, what, you know, when we face death as believers, do we, do we just you know, go into a coffin? Is it okay to be cremated? What's going to happen to our bodies in the resurrection? You know, is it actual physical body that gets resurrected? All these kinds of things, Paul's going to deal with them. 
And he's going to talk about them. He's also going to talk a little bit about the rapture. He's going to talk a little bit about uh, things like uh, of that nature. And I know that's kind of a, can be a, a subject that there's a lot of discussion around. But listen, Paul's going to address all these things in chapter 15. But he has to start off in verses 1 through 11, laying a basis for the resurrection or a foundation, if you will, for the resurrection. And so that's what he's doing in these first 11 verses. And he starts off by laying the groundwork of the gospel, point A there on your outline, if you're filling those in, the groundwork of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. And he's going to talk about how the church started. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also, or by which also you are saved, he says, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's break this down for a minute. Paul starts off by saying, listen, the church started when I preached the gospel. Paul came and preached the gospel there. In verse 1, he says that. Now, this is more than just a reminder. This is more than just a declaration. What Paul is really doing here is he's actually getting personal with some of the leaders in the church at Corinth. You see, this was a sore point because they couldn't deny that Paul was the apostle sent by God to actually start their church. He was the one that God had brought to them to get things going in the first place. They were a people that were lost. They were living for the passions of their flesh. They had no idea what eternal life looked like. And Paul showed up with the good news. You know, Romans chapter 10 talks about those that bear the good news. It says that, oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, Paul was this guy in their lives. He was the guy that showed up. And yes, it might not have been palatable at first as he preached the gospel to them. Because, you know, the very first tenet of the gospel, we're going to get to that in a few minutes, is that we're sinners. And we need a Savior. And that's not always easy to to swallow. But Paul showed up and he preached the gospel to them. And this is Paul's way of basically chiding the church in Corinth. Because they're being ignorant of one thing, and that is his spiritual authority. His spiritual authority in their lives. He's a spiritual father figure for the church in Corinth. So he's having to make known to them again, he says, the good news that he preached to them. He's just, it's just a subtle reminder there that Paul is the one who founded the church in Corinth. But he reminds them, or makes it known to them, that not only did he preach to them, but... There in verse 1, he says the Corinthians also received it. The Corinthians received the good news. You see, instead of rejecting the good news about God's plan of salvation by grace, the Corinthians actually received it for what it was. They believed it as God's truth. It rang true in their hearts. And we know that it was a true conversion experience because of what Paul says next there in verse 1, that they were standing on it or they stood on it. On the gospel message in verse 1 it says. More than just receiving it. They stood upon the truth of the gospel. Now listen church. This is important. This is good stuff right here. Paul says I preached it. You received it. But more than just receive. You also stood on the truth of God's word. 
This is so good for us as Christians to hear because you know what? Sometimes we, we, we think of the gospel as that, that experience from the past, don't we? It's that experience when the gospel was shared with us, when we first believed it, we received and we believed, and then we think, okay, now we need to move on to bigger and better things. And, and we think that Christianity is all about, you know, moving on to other experiences or talking about other things. But listen, Paul says, hey, you guys are standing. You're stood upon the gospel, and that's where you've planted your feet. Hey, guys, I know that this is a word for me. Because so often in my life, what happens is the enemy comes. Satan will come along. And because I've sinned or because I've blown it or messed up or something, he'll start to whisper in my ear, you're, you're, you're such a loser. You're not worthy to be called a Christian. You're not worthy to be a pastor. You, you really shouldn't be serving there at that church. And he begins to heap condemnation upon me. And you know what? There was a time in my life in the, in the past where I bought into the lie of Satan. And I started to believe what he was saying about me. And it was this toxic thing that began to just really affect me as a person. And, and I started to really change the way that I, I saw myself. But you know what? There was a time when the gospel message became fresh and new again to me. And I realized that the truth of the gospel was not just for that time when I was a young boy and I had received it, but it was for my life today. That I had to make a conscious choice and a decision today. Hey, I'm going to stand in the truth of what God says about me. What God said and what His Word says about me as a child of God. I choose to make that where I stand. And guys, when we do that, it changes our lives. It changes our identity. And so I encourage you to, to receive it. What Paul's saying, he said, you didn't just receive it. You're also standing on it. It's one thing to receive, but it's another to stand in it. That means you're obeying it. Thirdly there, he also says that they're being saved by it. Look at verse 2 again with me. Paul says there, by which also you are saved. Now that phrase, also you are saved, in the Greek language, that is a verb that is actually written in the present active tense. And so what that means is that the Corinthians are not just receiving and standing on the gospel, they're being saved presently. It's an active thing in their lives. And guys, that's important to realize too. The gospel is something that is for every day. It's not just an experience from the past. And, and something we stand on when we are getting beat up by the enemy, it's for every day. You and I are meant to stand in and be saved by the gospel on a daily basis. Now, does that mean that we need to say the sinner's prayer every day and you know go through the motions of getting saved, so to speak? No, of course not. That's not what this means. What this means is that they were uh, uh, continually uh, realizing God's grace. They were continually receiving God's grace and His effectual power was working in their lives every day. Guys, that's what Christianity is all about. It's about God's grace. Receiving that grace every single day and allowing His power to work in our lives. Note that there's a condition in this verse. And, and, and just really quick, I'm not... I, Note that condition there in verse 2. He says, If you hold fast that word which I preached, notice that Paul is reminding them that the gospel message that he preached is the gospel. There's no changing it out. There's no switching it up. 
You need to understand the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying that phrase, hold fast, in, in, uh, it has become over time this nautical term. In fact, it was the Dutch that first uh, used a word outvast, and, and, and that became in English avast, and, and also hold fast, that sailors would use to talk about how they would hold on to the lines when there was a ship in a storm, when a ship went aloft in a storm, and it was being shaken and driven and moving, these sailors, for their very lives, would have to grab onto the rigging, and they would have to hold fast with everything that they were to keep themselves from being tossed overboard into the high seas. And so Peter himself in his uh, uh, epistle, in his letter, he wrote a verse in which he uses the same term, hold fast, in much the same sense. The idea is that, listen, you need to understand what the gospel is, the framework and the tenets, and you need to grab onto that, and that needs to be what you're clinging to. And there should be no other thing that, is, 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 that you're holding to with that kind of strength except for this gospel message to persevere even during the tough times, the storms. To not hold fast in faith to the good news which Paul had preached would mean that they were erring, that they were making a mistake, that they were believing in, in a false gospel. And it would be in vain. It would be emptiness. It would be as if it wasn't even true and, and it would be disastrous. So Paul tells them, hey, you need to hold fast to the gospel that I preached. Now, in subpoint B there, he's going to go into the framework of the gospel. He's going to explain to them explicitly, here is the gospel message that you need to cling to, that you need to hold fast to. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So what is the framework of the gospel? Well, number one, it's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That is the bedrock, that is the foundational truth of the good news, you guys. Christ died for our sins. You know, it's interesting to me how difficult that is for human beings to admit that we are sinners, that we have contributed to the reason for why Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. You know, I had the privilege again this week of sharing the gospel with somebody. God sets up divine appointments for me frequently, and I get that opportunity to share the good news. And there was a man that came to the church, and he was talking to us about some things, and I got to sit down and share the gospel with him. And, and it was such a great conversation, but we got to the point where I asked him, you know, if what you believe is not true, would you want to know about it? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I, I would want to know about it. And I said, well, let me open up the Bible and let's look at Romans. And, and because we had got to a question there where, you know, I had asked him and I had said, you know, if you were to die today, you know, knock on wood, that, that wouldn't happen. But if you were to die today, that always makes people uncomfortable when they start thinking about that. I don't know about you, but man, I sure hope I don't die today. But, but, but if I did die today, and the Lord was to say to you, or to me, you know, why should I allow you to come into heaven? Why, why should I allow you to pass? And, and, and I, I just, I've heard this response so many times, it's just like, everybody says, it. Well, well, I'm a good person. And I said, wait a second, so you're telling me that you're trusting in your own goodness to get into heaven? Well, 
No, I mean, I've also gone to church. I've gone to church and prayed my whole life. Great. Where are you going to church right now? Oh, I'm not going to church. Oh, so you're trusting in something that you're really not attending for your salvation. But listen, this is where so many people get confused is that we think that God is going to let us into heaven because we went to church or because we said some prayer. Man, that's not it, guys. The bedrock of the good news of Jesus Christ is that you and I are sinners. We've committed crimes against God. If I had to pay God for every evil thought that I've thought, every evil word that I've spoken, every evil action that I've done, man, I don't have what it takes to pay God back for the crimes that I've committed against a holy and just God. The bedrock of salvation is that I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And God, in His love, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord for that good news. Praise the Lord for that good news because I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I can never in my own good works earn my salvation. I know that Christ loves me because He died for me. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. That's the bedrock, the foundation of the gospel. Secondly, Paul says that Christ was buried there in verse 4. Why does he say Christ was buried? Why is this a framework of the gospel. Let me tell you why. Paul is emphasizing here that Jesus Christ was a real man. He was God in the flesh. He was God who had taken on a human body and he actually physically died on the cross. And his body, his physical body was taken down and laid in a tomb. Guys, that right there refutes so many false teachings and so many false religions. All in, all in that one sentence right there, that Christ was buried. His actual physical body was put into the ground. This means, guys, there was a tomb. This means there was a body, an actual body that was laid in that tomb. And so that's a tenet or it's a framework of the good news. Thirdly, there, the third part of the gospel, the framework of the gospel, is that Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Christ also rose. Again, this is the essential good news, guys. Why is that? Why does Paul include the burial and the resurrection? Well, he's going to prove here that if there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there can be no guarantee of your own resurrection from the dead. He's going to go on to say. In fact, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain, Paul is going to say a little bit later on. Your faith is empty. But because of these facts, because Jesus Christ, a man, God in the flesh died on the cross, was buried, put in the tomb, and then risen from the dead? Hey, because of that, you and I have hope. We have a living hope. We have a hope that we can take to the bank and put our faith in. In fact, verses 3 and 4 are probably part of a creed, an early church creed that was memorized and recited in all of the early churches that were started by the apostles. Each one of them would have seen not only the death and the burial, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they, that was what they stood upon. That's the common ground. Now, all of this for us is evidence. 
Because we know that the Christian church has its origin in the very place where Jesus died. Think about that for a second. Now, I've been over to Israel. I've seen the garden tomb. It's empty. There's no bones laying in there. But that doesn't mean... that. To me, that's not the, the, the proof or the evidence. This right here, God's holy word, is the proof and the evidence. And what Paul is saying is that here we have all of this evidence, including an empty tomb in Jerusalem where the church was started. Guys, think about that for a second. If the tomb was not empty, if Christ was really dead and laying in that tomb, then whenever the apostles stood up to preach about a risen Lord and the good news of Jesus Christ, everybody could have just said, "Uh, you're lying, and here's the proof. Let's go over and let's look at the tomb. Here's the tomb. There's Jesus' body. He's still dead. But the fact that the entire church, the Christian movement, started in the place where Jesus Christ died, was buried, and then resurrected is proof to us that this is, this is real. Not only that, Paul goes on and he ties it together in verses 5 through 8. He talks about Christ appearing to many witnesses, eyewitnesses. Verse 5, he says, And that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now that doesn't mean, Paul isn't talking about soul sleep here. That's his euphemism for died. They died, and he's not saying that you know they, they went into some kind of soul slumber here. He's just saying, hey, uh, they, they, they've, they've died, but they're going to be reawakened at the resurrection, is what he means. And, and then he goes on in verse 7, he says, And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So Paul is simply here confirming the facts. And he's reminding the Corinthians of the common ground that all Christians share. That is the basics of the good news. Christ died for our sins. He was buried in the tomb. And then he was raised on the third day. And he lives forevermore. Those tenets have been not only uh, uh, proven through all of these other things, but also by these, these eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses here that Paul brings up. Now Paul ends there in verse 8 by mentioning his own personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And this is where we see the impact of the gospel now in Paul's life. The impact of the gospel in Paul's life. Verse 8. It says, Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So Paul is referring now to his own resurrection encounter with Jesus Christ. Now this happened in Paul's life when he was on his way to Damascus for the express reason to persecute Christians and to lock them up, that were, the Christians that were reported to be there in Damascus. And if you'll turn back to Acts right now, let's turn over to Acts chapter 26, two books back in your Bibles. Acts chapter 26 And I want to read about Paul's conversion story. He's sharing this as a testimony in Acts chapter 26. And he's sharing it there with King Agrippa. And this is such an awesome story. I just want to read it with you guys and and let it sink into our hearts this morning. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Paul speaking here. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all... We all had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Paul's story. That's Paul's testimony. I love it because every single one of us has a testimony. You have a conversion story of how things were in your life. But this is Paul's story. And so Paul is talking about the gospel that he preached. And he's preaching the gospel because of the impact it made in his personal life. Folks, I hope that you have had an amazing encounter with God's amazing grace in your life. I hope that you understand the importance of the gospel in your life. Paul did. Paul's life was changed forever by God's grace. He went from a persecutor of the church to a minister of the church. He went from a guy who was voting thumbs down, kill him, take him out, to a guy who is coming alongside of him and sharing the hope and the joy and the peace of God. He went from a torturer of Christians to a witness of the truth of Jesus Christ. He went from a prominent Jewish scholar on his way to becoming rabbi to becoming a man who was set free and and, and sent to the Gentiles to share the good news. He went from being bound by the power of darkness to being transferred to the kingdom of light. He was on his way to eternal judgment. He was on his way to hell. But God intervened with his love. Guys, we all have a similar story. We all have a similar story, and we need to think about it. We need to meditate on what our story is. You know, if it was not for the gospel, I don't know where I would be. I really don't know where I would be. I know I wouldn't have a purpose. I wouldn't have a passion in my life. I wouldn't have a reason for doing what I do. So I don't know where I would be. It's up to speculation, I'm sure, but I know that I would be wild. I know that I wouldn't have any reason really to live, so I would be trying crazy things, I guarantee you. I'd be trying to feel something and fill the void in my life with something, I guarantee you. 
But thank God for the gospel, the grace of God that changes lives. It's no wonder, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes on and he says in verse 9, For I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I love those verses. You know, Paul wasn't pridefully saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He wasn't asserting that, hey, live with me. He was saying, God has done some radical, amazing things in my life. And everything that I am today is because of God. He recognized the gospel's power. And that's probably why he was able to do so much for the Lord. Paul's life was forever changed by the good news. And not just changed. It it, it wasn't that grace was just Paul's motive. It it, it changed him and, and it became what he depended on every day. It became what helped him to do the things that he did. And there's a big difference there. We're going to talk more about that next week. But lastly here, we see... The conclusion in verse 11, the conclusion here is that the gospel is common ground for everyone. Look at verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul brings this part of chapter 15 here to a conclusion. He's talking about the basis, the foundation for why the resurrection of the dead is true. And, and, and he, he concludes that. He says, therefore, he's bringing to a conclusion here that the common ground of Paul, all of the other apostles, and every believer in Jesus Christ is what Paul has just talked about. It's the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. Notice also that Paul tied that into the scriptures. He said twice there in verse 3 and 4 that it was according to the scriptures. And that's because Paul is tying this whole book Together, you guys, this book is the inspired, inerrant word of God, given to us by God to reveal his son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we understand that all of it ties together. The Bible, starting from Genesis to Revelation, guys, it's the inspired, inerrant word of God given to us to reveal the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I say that this morning because there are institutions, there are churches and seminaries, even here in Paris, that do not believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God in its original manuscripts. And they place themselves as the judge of the scriptures. They decide what's true and what's right and what's wrong. And, and, and so if they want to develop doctrine and change things as times change, as society changes, well, then they do that. Because for them, doctrine is changeable. It's developing. But guys, that's not the Bible that Paul preached. It's not the Bible that he's talking about that is according to the Scriptures. The good news of Jesus Christ, it's founded on doctrinal truth that never changes. It never changes. And so you'll never see, uh, at Calvary Chapel at least, as long as I'm here, us developing the doctrine to fit the changing times that we live in. No, doctrine is doctrine. It's truth. The framework of the gospel is not interchangeable. It's not something that we can choose to set ourselves up over as judge and say, well, I believe this, but not that. No, 
It's, it's all there. Verses 3 and 4. This is the gospel, guys. We believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again from the dead according to the scriptures. So how can we apply this to our lives today? Well, I would ask you the question. First of all, have you received the good news in your life today? Have you received it as truth, as God's truth for you? Do you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior today? That if you were to die today in your sins without having trusted, without having placed your faith in Christ, you would be eternally separated in judgment from God's love. Actually, it is a form of God's love. Because God loves you, He cannot overlook sin. Because God is a God of love and justice, He does not sweep your sin under the carpet and say, okay, we'll treat that as if it never happened. He cannot do that. Because God is just, He must punish your sin and my sin. And so the first part of this today, applying this to our lives, is receiving the good news that Christ died for our sins. Have you done that? Have you realized that? Have you received that? And are you standing on it and being saved by Jesus today? That speaks of the personal relationship that Jesus desires to have with you. You know, there's Christians, possibly Christians even in this sanctuary today, who are trusting in church attendance and the fact that you pray to go to heaven one day. And you're failing to realize that Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. That it is because he died for your sins that you're saved. And that is it alone. There's no other reason. And he was buried and he rose from the dead. And he's alive today so that he can have a real relationship with you. Is your Christianity nothing more than a ritual? A religious experience? Man, Jesus died because of your sins and my sins. He's looking for more than just you checking the box of going to church. So I would ask you the question, then how has God's grace changed you? If you've received it, and you're believing it and standing on it, then are you also allowing His grace to change you? Or are you thinking, well, the gospel was then. I I received the Lord, I'm a Christian, and, and now today I'm just living my life the best I can. There's a lot of Christians that do that too. They start out, they're they're saved, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but then they're trying to live out the Christian faith in the power of their own flesh. They forget that they need to be saved every day, that God's grace is for them today, that everything that you do, it's it's fueled by God's grace, His, His passion, His purpose for your life. Paul would say to you, can you say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Man, that's a powerful statement. Listen, we have the communion table set up here today. And as we close our service, I want to remind you that these tables represent God's grace. They represent God's mercy. They represent God's love. And we have an opportunity today to say, Lord, I need to renew my strength. I need to renew my faith in in your grace and in your purpose for my life. And by coming to the table today as Christians, as believers, we can say, Lord, I I believe, and more than believe, I'm standing in, and, and I'm being saved by your grace, your power, your strength, your beautiful plan of the gospel in my life. That's what this table represents.
So as we close today, I would encourage you guys to take the time to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you, to encourage you, but also to point out to you if you've drifted away from that dependence upon Him and and you're trusting in something other than the Christ who died for your sins. Let's pray.